0: In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and the mind of a man was given to it and behold another beast a second one like a bear it was raised up on one side it had 3 ribs in its mouth between its teeth and it was told to arise devour much flesh after this i looked and behold another like a leopard with 4 wings of a bird on its back and it, the beast had 4 heads and dominion was given to it after this i saw in the night visions and behold a fourth beast terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth, it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it and it had 10 horns. I considered the horns and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, his wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words the horn was speaking, And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You You may be seated. So, this morning, we're continuing our series in the life of Daniel, and we've been approaching this book of the Bible through the lens of what is it us to follow the biblical God in the city? That if we talk about Res Pres being a church for urban Madison, what does that look like? And the opening chapters of Daniel have been really helpful for us because they've been these narratives, these stories or case studies that have shown us how uh, Daniel and his friends have towed the line between being for the flourishing and the prosperity of Babylon, this foreign country that they've been taken to, while also maintaining their fidelity, their integrity, their, their faithfulness to the God uh, that, they, that they believe in, uh, the one true God. And so it's been really helpful for us to look at Daniel and his friends in all of these different circumstances and contexts, how their faith and, and how their lives have been instructive for us and help shape our faith and our life in the city as we think about how we follow Jesus in uh, our neighborhoods, our schools, uh, our workplaces, and places like that. The narratives have been super helpful, but the passage that we just read (laughs) is not a narrative. It is not something that happened uh, like uh, like the previous stories that we've encountered. Uh, In the passage that we've just read, we could say that, that the key of the book of Daniel has changed, that the genre of the book of Daniel has shifted from narratives to this genre that we don't have a real neat category for in the 21st century. It's the genre that's known as apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic literature, uh, we'll unpack what that means in a moment, but in the ancient Near East, where apocalyptic literature uh, was often used, it was a style of literature that was written uh, for a specific period in time. So apocalyptic literature isn't the kind of genre of of literature that, that appears when things are going well, when everything is right with the world, as things are as they should be, you're not going to find the words of, of, say, a Daniel 7 in your news feeds or on the bestseller list of a Barnes & Noble. The words of Daniel 7 come around when things are not going well. And even more specifically, the words of Daniel 7 appear when things look like that they will never be well again, that, that the good days are, are long gone, that, that it's always winter and never Christmas. That the, the ending that we all hope to have, the storybook ending of they lived happily ever after, uh, looks more like the bad guys win and we were never happy again. But what Daniel chapter 7 and really the rest of the book of Daniel from, from Jan- Daniel 7 through the end of Daniel 12 will show us is that the ending of the story that sometimes seems inevitable, that the bad guys win and that we're never happy again, that that isn't the end of the story. Now, Daniel 7 has some insane and terrifying images in it, but the words of Daniel 7 aren't written in order to give us nightmares. They're written to actually calm our nightmares. They're written to help us see uh, the story of history from a different perspective. And I want to show us how that works. And so if you're here this morning and you feel like your world is ending, if you feel like you're in an apocalyptic moment, whether you're overwhelmed by what's happening with the world out there, with all the violence and evil and oppression and injustice that's running rampant in all sorts of ways, or maybe you're experiencing a personal apocalypse this morning, maybe a relationship has ended badly, maybe your your prospects in school or the school you're hoping to go to beyond college isn't shaping up the way that you had hoped. Maybe you've been wrestling with a diagnosis or, or some hard news, and you feel like your world is ending. The words of Daniel 7 can actually be a help for you this morning. In fact, one biblical scholar, one commentator named Joyce Baldwin, goes as far to say that if you grasp what's happening here in Daniel 7, you'll actually possess the key to history. It's a bold statement. If you know what's happening in this passage, you have the key to history. And so I want us to unpack what that looks like by, by examining two things. Uh, I want us to first get into the sandals of the Old Testament audience and look at Apocalypse Then, and then we'll fast forward and look at Apocalypse Now right, not the movie, but we'll look at Apocalypse Then, and then we'll look at Apocalypse Now. So let's consider first Apocalypse Then. And in order for us to get at the meaning, uh, we have to do a little bit of context. So first, uh, I want you to see that Daniel 7 uh, doesn't pick up where Daniel 6 left off, at least chronologically speaking. Uh, Daniel chapter 6 ends with Daniel serving King Darius in the Medo-Persian Empire. And you see verse 1 of our passage, it opens with King Belshazzar being king. We met, Dan- we met Belshazzar back in Daniel 5. And so, the, the, you know, so the, the chronology of Daniel isn't linear in terms of you start in chapter 1 and you work all the way through chapter 12. What actually works is that you have Daniel 4, and then you have Daniel 7, then you have Daniel 5. So why is the order out of order? Why is Daniel 7 coming here and not earlier in the book? Well, I think the author of Daniel is intentional about how he structured his book, not just in grouping similar genres together, but I think Daniel also has a different perspective in mind, and he has a different audience in mind. So when you think about having a different perspective in mind, one thing you would notice if you were were to read Daniel from cover to cover, you would see that the first six chapters of the book are third-person narrative. Uh, The stories involve uh, Daniel and his friends, and Daniel and his friends aren't the main characters of the story. It's usually a king who has a problem, and then Daniel and his friends come in to relieve the tension, In Daniel 7 through 12, we actually find that it shifts from third person to first person. Daniel is now the main character of the story. Daniel is no longer interpreting dreams that other people are having. He has visions of his own that he now has to make sense of. So there's a shift in perspective. But not only is there a shift in perspective, you could also say that there's a shift in audience. Again, when you read Daniel from cover to cover, the opening chapters of Daniel 1 to 6 all begin with the name of a king. Daniel 1 begins with Jehoiakim. Uh, Daniel 2-4 through four has the, opens with Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel 5 is Belshazzar, Daniel 6 is Darius, and what you see in Daniel 7 is that while it does open with a year of a king, it, it does so really just to give a timestamp, stamp, and then Daniel begins to speak in the first person. So Daniel is speaking in the first person, and I think this marks a change in audience because Daniel 1 to 6 because the kings are the main characters of those stories those narratives are meant for the nations those narratives are meant for all the people who are living in in the empires of the world to help people see that the God of Daniel the God of Daniel and his friends is the one true God in fact what's unique about the book of Daniel is that unlike the rest of the Old Testament a large portion of Daniel Daniel 2 through Daniel 7 is not written in Hebrew, the language of the Israelites. It's written in Aramaic. It's written in, in the, the lingua franca of the day. Like it's, it's what Aramaic is to the ancient world, what English is to our world. It's a language uh, that everybody seeks to understand if you're going to operate on a, on, a, on a global or international level. And so the audience of Daniel 1-6 to is, is an audience. It's, it's God's proclaiming to the nations that the God of Daniel is the one true God. And now, by going into the first person, we could say that Daniel is becoming a representative of the nation of Israel. That God is no longer speaking to the nations generally. He's now speaking to his people specifically. A message uh, of hope. A message uh, specifically for his people. You See, through Daniel, God is speaking to a people who have felt like that their world had ended. That their world had ended 70 years ago when their when their nation when their temple was destroyed and demolished, and they're want, and they're living in the days wondering if things will ever be made right again, if their days will ever be happy, again, and so with that context in mind, let's uh, quickly work our way back through the vision and and what it's all about. So this passage, uh, you could say, is literally "Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them." Sorry for the second movie reference, but Daniel has this vision of four beasts rising up. Out of the sea, and each one is is imposing in its own way, but the fourth beast is by far the most dangerous. In fact, Daniel struggles to find words to exactly how to describe this beast that he's seeing. And all of the beasts bring violence and chaos with them. They stomp and devour. They eat and destroy. But then Daniel sees something else. He sees a throne room, and he sees someone called the Ancient of Days sit on the throne and hold court over these four beasts. Books are brought out, and he brings judgment on those beasts, and he takes away their power and authority and dominion away from them. And then finally, another figure, one like the Son of Man, Daniel says, emerges, and the Ancient of Days gives him all that power and authority, and he establishes a kingdom that endures forever. And if this story sounds familiar to you, it's because if you go back to Daniel 2, you actually get pretty much the same story, uh, the story of four kingdoms of the world with the fourth kingdom being particularly evil and violent, followed by a kingdom that will never be destroyed. In fact, you could say that this is virtually the same story, but it's told in an apocalyptic key. And I said at the beginning that I would unpack uh, apocalyptic, and so here we go. what, what I would say uh, about apocalyptic literature, uh, I would say first and foremost, I'm indebted to the work of a scholar named Richard Baucom. He's a scholar at Cambridge University over in the UK, and he's one of the world's most respected biblical scholars in academia today. And on apocalyptic literature, uh, bockham says that, that this, this genre of literature really has two goals in mind. The first goal of apocalyptic literature then is that apocalyptic apocalyptic literature is is there to help you recognize transcendence. It's there to help you recognize transcendence. It's here to pull the covers back on the world that we see to show us the world that we can't see. Uh, What we could say is that um, in in Daniel 7, Daniel is not getting a different picture of, of the way the world looks. He's actually getting the whole picture. Daniel's not getting a different picture, he's getting the whole picture. And in fact, that's what the word apocalypse literally means. It means a a revealing, an uncovering, uh, a dismantling of perceived realities, as Alyssa Wilkinson puts it. Uh, So apocalyptic is here to give us the whole picture, and uh, it's meant to help us see beyond the physical world to the metaphysical, from the natural to the supernatural. And maybe you're reading this section, you're wondering, okay, I, I get the principle, but why is, the, why is the transcendent world, why is this metaphysical world so fantastical? Like, couldn't you just explain neat, neatly and concisely that there's, there's a world that we see and a world that we can't see and both are real? Why, why go through all this imagery of beasts and uh, ancient of days and son of man and all of these different things? Couldn't you just be a little bit more plain? And if you're thinking that, I'm right there with you. I would appreciate a little bit more straight talk, you know, from, from the Bible. But when we have these images in, in places like Daniel 7, uh, there, there is a reason for it. And this is where I was helped by Bacham. He writes this, he says, In order to appreciate the importance of imagery in apocalyptic literature, we should remember that the original audience in the great cities of the ancient world were constantly confronted with powerful images of the Babylonian vision of the world. Civic and religious architecture, iconography, statues, rituals, and festivals, even the visual wonder of cleverly engineered miracles in the temples, all provided powerful visual impressions of Babylonian imperial power and of the splendor of pagan religion. In this context, apocalyptic literature provides a set of prophetic counter images which impress on its readers a different vision of the world, how it looks from heaven, the visual power of the book affects a kind of purging of the Christian imagination, refurbishing it with alternative visions of the world and how it will be." In other words, uh, what Bauckham here is saying is that having these kinds of images are meant to be sort of an imagination palate cleanser for God's people, because the ancient, uh, because the, the people of ancient Israel living in the nations of the world, they are constantly bombarded with all sorts of images of power, all sorts of images of dominance, all sorts of images of these are the things that are important in the world that you should devote your life to and give yourself over to. And so prophetic, uh, apocalyptic literature is meant to to cast those visions and images away and to give you a new set of images, to give you a new set of lenses through which to view the world. And so uh, apocalyptic pulls back the curtain and helps the people of God see the way, uh, to see the world the way that God sees it. That... The image is so that the kingdoms of men look terrifying and beastly, but from the perspective of God, they are just beasts. They are just animals. They don't have minds. They're not sophisticated. That that and, and on top of that, that, there is an order above all the chaos. That God sits enthroned above the kingdoms of men, and He does bring judgment. He knows what's going on, and He has a plan to make things right. That the kingdoms of men are are. Beastly and intimidating, but they're limited and not ultimate. So, that was the first use of apocalypse then, is to help the people of God recognize transcendence, that there is an order to the world, that even though things seem chaotic on the surface, that God is still behind everything and he's in control. But the second use of apocalypse then is not just to help God's people recognize transcendence, it's used to help people remember that God is in control, to help people remember that God is in control. Uh, the second goal of, of, of Apocalypse, in the, wor- in the words of Richard Bauckham, is to answer the question: Who is Lord of the World? Who is Lord of the World? Who is really in control? Because we live in a world where, where things uh, don't don't appear as they ought to be. We live in a world where where the good die young. Where where those who play by the rules, the, the good people suffer, and the, and the wicked people flourish. Uh, we live in a world where, where justice isn't realized in every corner of our society, where, if, where it's in fact more expedient to live an unjust, uh, duplicitous, uh, look-out-for-yourself kind of life rather than living the life that God extends for his people to live. And it's in those moments where where we're tempted to believe that the stories of the culture, that the, the way of life that's held out to us in order to get ahead and have our dreams fulfilled. Uh, it's in those moments that apocalyptic literature shakes us awake and says, remember who's Lord of the world, that, that God is still on his throne, that, that the wicked are flourishing for now, that, that evil persists for a time, that there is a day coming when all that is wrong will be set to rights, where all that is out of joint and out of place will be mended and made new. And so because that end is coming... Don't compromise now. Don't give in. Uh, don't give in now. Especially when, when everything in our culture, everything that, that's being pressured upon you to go the other way, whenever the pressure feels its strongest, that's when you need to remember the hardest. That God is on His throne. That He still is the Lord of the world, and that He is behind all things, and He is going to make everything right again. So that's the that's the the goal of apocalypse. Then it's 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 there to help. God's people recognize transcendence, that that the world that we see uh, is not all that there is. Uh, And then it's helped us to remember that God is in control of history, that kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but God is sovereign over all. And so as we shift gears to look at apocalypse now, uh, how can we take the words of Daniel 7 and and help them become real in our lives? What does this vision have to do with us today? Well, I think we, we can take those same two things. To, to recognize transcendence and to remember that God is in control. And we can apply them to our to our lives, to our situations, to our little apocalypses, great and small. And uh, we can do so in a deeper and a more comprehensive way than Daniel did, because here's how. So when we talk about recognizing transcendence, we see that Daniel uh, is pulled up into heaven, and he can see the whole picture. And the focal point of this vision isn't so much on the beasts and the terror that they're, that they're wreaking on the world. The, the focal point of the vision is the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. It's, it's the throne room of God. And in this vision, Daniel gets a glimpse of what God is going to do to set, to set the world right. He's going to strip the beasts and those, those kingdoms of their power, and he's going to give that power to someone that was called one like the Son of Man in Daniel's words. And this Son of Man is an interesting character because in verse 13, he he's talked about as, as riding on the clouds of heaven. And in Jewish literature, that phrase, riding on the clouds, is something that only gods can do. Really, really in the Jewish imagination, something that only the, the one true God can do. Only God can ride on the clouds. And yet we read that this Son of Man is a man in some senses. He's presented to God, so he rides on the clouds as God, but he reigns, uh, with God and as God. And so this this figure is somewhat enigmatic, and Daniel doesn't quite understand who this person is. In fact, if you end Daniel chapter 7, you read that verse, he says, I've been troubled for many days and I and I lost sleep over what I've saw, over what I've seen. He he struggles to make sense of what this vision means and who the Son of Man is. But but just a few centuries from from that time from when Daniel lived that enigmatic figure of the Son of Man becomes a little bit more clear. It, he starts to come into view, and, and, and he comes into view not because everybody else has a transcendent experience where we're pulled up into heaven to see the whole picture. We actually get this, this glimpse of who the Son of Man is because the transcendent one, God himself, comes down and writes himself into history, and he does so through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And the incarnation is, is this event in human history where God became man. And uh, we could compare it to, uh, to to this. I was really helped by the Catholic writer Dorothy Sayers when she says that the incarnation of Jesus is a is lot like when Shakespeare, or a lot like when Hamlet goes looking for Shakespeare. So imagine uh, how how would how in the world would Hamlet ever find Shakespeare? No matter uh, how far Hamlet could search, no matter how much expense Hamlet could incur to search his world for Shakespeare, uh, he's not able to find him. The only way that Shakespeare is able uh, to be found by Hamlet is if Shakespeare writes himself into the story. And that's what we get in the incarnation, is God writing himself into history, becoming man in Jesus. And when Jesus writes himself into history, he takes that title from Daniel 7, the Son of Man, and he applies it to himself. He applies this title of Son of Man to himself. In fact, he does it so frequently throughout the New Testament uh, over 70 times in the Gospels, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. And the Gospel of Mark is a great uh, example of, of this of this language being used by Jesus. See, Mark's Gospel opens up with Jesus saying, The kingdom of God is at hand, and, and I'm at the focal point of this kingdom. Repent and believe in the Gospel. And in Chapter 2, Jesus is teaching the religious leaders, and a, a paralytic crashes the party. And so Jesus looks at this man and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders... Uh, go into this go into this fit, and they say, who, who can forgive sins but God alone? And then Jesus says, well, which one is easier, to tell a paralyzed man to get up and walk or to forgive someone's sins? And he says, so that you know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, he tells a paralyzed man to get up and go home. You see, Jesus, in that moment, declares that he is the Son of Man, the, the one that was promised by God. And in chapter 10 of Mark's Gospel, we read this for our, our assurance of pardon. Jesus tells his followers that the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve, and to give up his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says that I've come to exercise power, but not in a way that, that the beastly kingdoms of earth exercise power through violence and coercion and oppression. In fact, I'm the kind of king who's come to lay my power down. I've come to lay my life down as a ransom so that I can give my life for you so that you can go free. See, Jesus says he's the son of man, but he's the son of man in a way that's completely counter to the world's expectations. And then finally, in Mark chapter 14, Jesus is on trial before the same religious leaders of the day. And he's been on trial because he's claimed to be God. And he's asked point blank, are you the Messiah? Are you God's promised Savior King? And Jesus responds with these words. He says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of of heaven. See, Daniel 7.13 Seven thirteen are on the words of of Jesus's lips in that trial. He he is in explicit terms saying, "I am God's promised Savior King. I am the one who reigns as God, and I'm the one that reigns with God." And it's that confession that puts Jesus to death. It's from that statement that Jesus is is executed on the cross like a like a common criminal. But it's through that execution uh, on the cross that Jesus actually accomplishes his plan of wresting away the power uh, of the of the evil and unjust systems of the world of, of the power and the evil and the, the oppression of the world even wresting away authority from death itself see Jesus dies the death that we should have died and and he rose again from the dead to vindicate and validate his claims to be the Son of Man and to testify to us all that I am who I said I am I am the person who is God and I reign with God and if you believe in me if you put me at the center of your life, then you will experience freedom and joy. You will know that, that, your, that your apocalypse, uh, that your judgment day has moved from the future to the past. That in me, you can experience life and life to the full. See, Jesus uh, gives us salvation from all of our apocalypses, all of our judgment days in him. And so we can recognize transcendence by looking at Jesus as the son of man. But then lastly, we can recognize, uh, we can we can uh, use the story in our apocalypse now to, to remember that God is in control of history, that Daniel needed this vision to purge his imagination, and so we need Jesus to purge our imaginations as well. When we feel overwhelmed by the problems and pains of our world, we need Jesus to give us a vision of the end to know that he is on the throne, <clears throat> and he will make all things right. The New Testament uh, actually has a book of apocalyptic literature also it's the book of revelation and in that book we see jesus se- seated on the throne coming down with the new city the new jerusalem from heaven and he says behold i will make all things new i will make all sad things come untrue and so because of that vision of the end we can move forward in our day-to-day lives not as a cynic resigned to the to the, to the injustices of the world not not to be people of inaction or of laziness because what is, we're not just pushing boulders up hills, we can move forward in hope, because we have a God who has promised to make all things new, he he will set all things to right, and that he even uses his people, even now in the world, to accomplish that vision, that Jesus is on the throne, and he will reign forever. And if I can end this on a practical note, as we move forward as a church, um, since I've Kind of sprinkle in some movie movie titles throughout the sermon. Uh, I want to end with a reflection from a filmmaker named Derek Johnson. And Derek Johnson, when he talks about the the apocalyptic movie genre, he says there's really two kinds of apocalyptic movies. There's uh, there's stop the apocalypse. So you think of movies like Armageddon, literally any James Bond movie. uh, And then there are survive the apocalypse movies. So you think of like Day After Tomorrow, Zombieland, um, Hunger Games. And so in, in Stop the Apocalypse movies, everybody tries to band together to, to stop Judgment Day from happening. So James Bond goes on a mission, uh, oil riggers, get in a spaceship to go, um, to go blow up an asteroid. Uh, people pool their resources to, to, to avert Judgment Day. And in Survive the Apocalypse movies, you're just trying to make it to the end. You know, you're trying to find a city where you can be safe, or you're just trying to be the last person standing. And as we look out at our culture, and even as we think about life in the church, we can see both of those strategies at work. We, we can see some stop the apocalypse churches where, where there's such an investment in the culture wars, where there's such a, a grasp for political power and trying to seize the institutions to, to make them serve uh, our vision of Christian ends. And we can also see survive the apocalypse style, style Christianity where we just kind of hunker down and withdraw and pray for either a, a new great awakening or, a new, or, or judgment day to come. And what I think the book of Daniel shows us is uh, that start... While stop the apocalypse and survive the apocalypse, have some grains of truth to them, that's not really the vision that God holds out for his people. See, rather than, than trying to stop the apocalypse or survive the apocalypse, uh, I think the book of Daniel shows us that we can actually use apocalypse for what it's really meant to do. It's meant to reveal and unveil, and in the best senses of the term, to disillusion and disenchant us. To, to break the spell that this world is all there is that we don't have to revert to worldly means to, 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 to reach holy ends, um, that we can let the apocalypse enter into our lives and give us the right set of lenses through which to view the world, that God is in control, that he, that he will make all things right and so that we can follow him even now into the personal and, and global apocalypses of our day. Um, cultural critic Russell Moore writes this. He says, you can't choose whether you will experience apocalypse. But an apocalypse can be an Armageddon or an invitation. So choose the latter. Choose, you can't choose whether you will be disillusioned. You can only choose when you will be disillusioned. So choose now. So, friends, uh, apocalypse is an invitation. To have your, have your perspective renewed, redeemed, cha- transformed, so that you can see the vision of the end, that, that while things look chaotic, while you feel like your world might be ending, that God is in control that he sent Jesus to, to make all things new, even now, and he's promised at, at the end of history to make all sad things come untrue. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who has come to make all things right in Jesus. Lord, that in your Son you have promised to make all sad things come untrue. Father, forgive us where we have been overwhelmed by what we see and have resorted to worldly ends to reach, uh, to reach holy ends. Um, Lord, forgive us, make us new. Help us, Lord, to follow you in every area of life, knowing that you are in control and that you are the Lord of history. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.